0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. This is the Word of God. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Joseph that we get to study, that we get to learn from, and that we get to examine as a forerunner of Christ and as as an example. Lord, we pray that you would use your spirit to um, make us attentive to your word this morning. Teach us. Um, Through your scripture and through your spirit, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. This morning we're going to see two major themes in Genesis chapter 41 as we continue to study the life of Joseph. The first major theme this morning is Joseph's miraculous acquisition of power against worldly norms. This is a very unusual way for a person to acquire power, uh, as he does, as we will see. And I, I, uh, I wanna make a parallel between Joseph's acquisition of power and other uh, miracles, really. And the second theme, which I have to stress, is separate and distinct from that theme is how Joseph dealt with suffering in his life and how we can look at Joseph's suffering and our own suffering uh, in light of how uh, Joseph dealt with his own. The, The big point here that I want to make between those two major themes is that God did not reward Joseph with money and power and position because he was patient. God entrusted his faithful servant with the tools to glorify God. So uh, keeping in mind those two major themes, let's set those aside, uh, but let's let's keep them in mind as we continue. Speaking of the acquisition of power, in 1998, a guy named Robert Greene wrote a best-selling book called The 48 Laws of Power. In the 48 Laws of Power, he outlines these laws that one should follow if you want to gain power and position. Green was right to call them laws and not guidelines or, or tips, because they're based on human nature and human instinct and carry over between cultures and age groups and historical eras. You know, These laws continue to apply as much today as they would have when the book was written 22 years ago. And as much as they would have in the courts of continental monarchs and in the palaces of ancient Egypt. The the book reads like a worldly book of Proverbs. It's fascinating for those seeking to be first. Listen to the first paragraph of the preface of the book The feeling of having no power over people and events is generally unbearable to us. When we feel helpless, we feel miserable. No one wants less power, everyone wants more. In the world today, however, it's dangerous to seem too power hungry, to be overt with your power moves. We have to seem fair and decent, so we need to be subtle, congenial yet cunning, democratic yet devious. (laughs) Green was a student of human nature, And in his books, he instructs us how to exploit and manipulate each other for our own benefit. This book and another of his are veritable instruction manuals on how to be a snake. Here are a couple examples just to give a little more color. Law number one, never outshine the master. Always make those above you feel comfortably superior. In your desire to please or impress them, don't go too far in displaying your talents, or you might accomplish the opposite. Inspire fear and insecurity. Make your masters appear more brilliant than they are, and you will attain the heights of power. Here's another one, law number four. Always say less than necessary. When you are trying to impress people with words, the more you say, the more common you appear, and the less in control. Even if you are saying something banal, it will seem original if you make it vague, open-ended, and (laughs) sphinx-like. And here's my personal favorite, law number seven. Get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit probably requires no further explanation. As you read this, you can't help but feel, okay, yeah, that's probably true, but man, should we do these things? Joseph experienced one of the most meteoric rises to power in history, as we'll read about this morning, going from being a jailed former household slave to being the vizier over one of the greatest empires in world history in a matter of moments. So let's see if his acquisition of power followed any of these rules. The first point in your outline is two whole years of meaningless suffering. Now if you flip your bulletin around, you'll see that this point in Joseph's story could also be called Joseph's perfect waiting room I'll explain more on that in a second. But for now, look with me at Genesis 40, verse 20. We're going to start a few verses early just for context. Let's read 40, verse 20, through 41, verse 14. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood next to the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up and devoured the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep again and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation." A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh." So as I mentioned about your outlines, you'll notice there are two titles for each point. One from the ordinary orientation and another from a different perspective. I'd like you to notice as we examine this part of Joseph's life here in chapter 41 that suffering in our lives can either be meaningless and random or we can choose to see suffering from a different perspective. So you can see in your bulletin from the default human perspective as you read it in the normal orientation, or you can flip it over and see the outline from God's point of view. You know, Joseph seemed to just have things happen to him. He was carted off as a slave when he was 17, sold by his brothers. And then he was bought as a slave and he worked in the house of Potiphar, and then he was accused wrongly by Potiphar's wife, just something he had no control over. And it would have been easy for him to just look at his circumstances as the result of other people's evil intentions toward him. In today's passage, Joseph lingered in prison two years longer than he should have. The chief cupbearer should have easily remembered him immediately to Pharaoh. I mean, how do you forget what just happened as soon as you get to Pharaoh, you, you should have, he should have said, oh, man, the most amazing thing just happened to me. You've you got to meet this guy. So Joseph, being in his late 20s, in custody, managing the house of the captain of the guard, after coming from Potiphar's house, where everything was under his supervision, he correctly interprets the dreams of two different people with supernatural precision. I mean, this is something you don't forget. So cynically... If the chief cupbearer didn't actually forget Joseph, he may have chosen not to remember him, breaking his promise and bringing a third major offense to Joseph's life. The cupbearer may have conveniently remembered Joseph when it was beneficial to his career, when there was a problem that he could solve with Joseph in his back pocket, and when he could be seen as helping out the pharaoh. Now, of course, it may also be that God caused the cupbearer to actually forget Joseph, and then to actually remember him at just the right time. In fact, many commentators, including Boyce, note that we see God working supernaturally in the minds of all the parties in this story. God first implants the recurring dreams in Pharaoh's mind, to the extent that Pharaoh becomes greatly distressed by them. And just as easily as God places the dreams in Pharaoh's mind, he clears the minds of his magicians and his philosophers and conjurers. None of them had a clue what the dreams meant. Nobody in the kingdom could even hazard a guess. Maybe this was a reason that Pharaoh was so distraught. Maybe normally he would have a dream and someone would kind of be able to, well, maybe it means we're going to be low on sorghum this year. I I don't know. But this time, they were totally stumped. And then God supernaturally gives Joseph the interpretation of the dreams right away on the spot. This is a difficult concept to accept in this age and in Western culture. We're a scientific, empirical people. We like to see the facts and figures. We like to see how things work, especially me. We're ingenious People. We invent with our ideas, our thoughts, and our hard work. But the truth of the matter is, science doesn't really know now and hasn't really ever had a great answer for where ideas come from. You know, The brain is the least understood organ in our bodies. Just think of how we talk about ideas. You know, it struck me. I had an epiphany. A light bulb went on. It occurred to me. I had an idea. The best guess science has about where ideas come from is that they come from a combination of experiences and circumstances and other random inputs from external sources. And that's kind of as far as we've gotten. We've been able to dissect the environment of where ideas tend to flourish. We have tips. For creativity, go for a walk every now and then. Don't just sit at your desk all day. Have a a varying cross-pollination of the areas of your brain. Paint or draw, take a break in the middle of the day to paint or draw. So we can kind of, we've got these tips to create the environment in which ideas tend to occur, but we still don't know what makes them occur. So if we can see that we have a tenuous, at best, understanding of where ideas come from, it's easy to see how God can easily influence our dreams, our thoughts, and our ideas and epiphanies. And that's probably what happened with Joseph, Pharaoh, and the courtiers 4,000 years ago in Egypt. You know, this chapter starts out by saying, after two whole years... Joseph had been sold into slavery at 17 and served in Potiphar's house for about 11 years until he was imprisoned after being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He was in prison for two years, apparently forgotten about and otherwise left to rot in either a pit or in the captain of the guard's house. Maybe the captain of the guard's house had a pit in it. I don't know. Um, But maybe you today are in the middle of your own two whole years. And maybe those two whole years have lasted 10 or 20. Maybe something bad happened to you out of no fault of your own, and you've kind of made the best of it for a while. You've been long-suffering and patient only for maybe something worse to happen. And just like us, Joseph didn't know what was about to happen to his life as a result of his suffering and his patience in prison. But hear this, brothers and sisters. The result of Joseph's suffering would turn out to eclipse anything that he could have possibly imagined. And we don't know when our period of suffering will end and whether it will end before we die or whether it will have any humanly discernible purpose at all. But one thing we do know is that when this life ends, if you have faith in Jesus, the life you will experience after your suffering ends will eclipse anything that you could possibly imagine. Another note here on Joseph's period of imprisonment before we move on. If the chief cupbearer would have immediately remembered Joseph to Pharaoh, what do you think Pharaoh would have said? I don't care about this guy. Well, what do I care about some guy who can interpret dreams? Pharaoh didn't have any dreams on deck that he was waiting to have interpreted. Why do I care about this random Hebrew guy? Pharaoh would not likely have cared at all and would have completely dismissed him. And the cupbearer would have checked that box in his mind. Hey, I mentioned Joseph to Pharaoh, and my duty's done. And he likely would never have remembered him. The point here is that God orchestrated Joseph's release from prison and the end of his suffering at exactly the right time. Moving on to the second point in your outline. The showtime for a misunderstood magician Or alternatively, God's perfect deployment of his emissary. Let's look at verses 15 through 36. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream. I've had a dream, and there is none who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. And Pharaoh proceeds to narrate the dreams to Joseph. Then Pharaoh says, and I told it to the magicians, and there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, on the spot, by the way, he didn't say, okay, give me a week. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Let's pause here just a moment and appreciate the unbelievable guts, the chutzpah it took Joseph to address Pharaoh in this way. Pharaoh did not ask Joseph what he thought Pharaoh should do about this impending famine and he probably would not have. Joseph just plows on right ahead. Here's what your dream means. Oh, and here, by the way, here's what I, a random Hebrew person who has no experience governing, who has no experience in leadership uh, aside from serving in someone's house, who has no experience in administration, who you've never met before, who's not a, even a Egyptian, Egyptian, doesn't have a, a, an idea about the reserves and the food and the farms and the cities. Here's what I think you should do. The substance of the plan that Joseph proposes is pretty straightforward, right? I mean, if you're going to have seven plentiful years and then seven years of nothing, then you would save some of the food from the seven years up front and then consume that during the seven years of famine. But the genius of the plan is in its administration and its execution, To have a simple plan in principle is one thing, but to execute it and implement it effectively is surely another. But I bet Pharaoh, who was running one of the most successful kingdoms at the time, is an effective leader. And he probably has plenty of effective leaders in his administration. And we could easily speculate that Pharaoh could have easily assigned one of his lieutenants to oversee Joseph's plan or another plan, or maybe he would have said, you know, that's pretty good, but I'm going to make a couple of tweaks. And he could have easily just said, great, Joseph, thanks a lot. Um, here's a couple of bucks, go on your way, you're released from prison, appreciate the favor. But that's not what had happened, because that's not what God had in mind. And to that point, keep in mind here when we think about Pharaoh's actions, Proverbs 21:1, which says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God clearly moved in the heart of Pharaoh to accomplish God's plan for Joseph, Joseph's family, and the people of Israel, just like he had orchestrated the dream, the empty minds of the Egyptian magicians, and Joseph's interpretation. Now, Joseph would be in the perfect position to begin a 400-year period of growth and incubation for the nation of Israel. Moving right along, your point three in your outline is rising to fulfill potential, or alternatively, Joseph's perfect position to save many. Let's look at verses 37 through 45. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt." And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphanath paneah And he gave him in marriage Asanath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Now keeping in mind that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, as we see in Proverbs 21, we see some odd results from Joseph's interpretation and plan of action. Joseph didn't get laughed out of the room, and he is immediately believed by Pharaoh and presumably his advisors. Uh, One reason I believe that kind of cultivated this environment for their acceptance of this idea was that in addition to God's influence over the minds of Pharaoh and his courtiers, ancient Egyptian texts tell of times prior to Joseph's visit When the entire Upper Egypt was dying of hunger, with every man resorting to cannibalism. And more recent archaeological research suggests a cyclical drought and resulting famine, um, with the cycle lasting several hundred years. Northern, or Lower Egypt depended on the seasonal flooding of the Nile, which was caused by rains down in the southern part, or upper, the higher elevations of Egypt, and every few hundred years those rains stopped coming, the Nile stopped flooding, and droughts would decimate the area. So Pharaoh would have loved a seven-year jump on this existential threat, and he rightly recognized that this young Hebrew just saved his entire empire, and he owes his salvation to Joseph or whoever Joseph's God is. Another part of his response Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name, Zaphanath Panea. It's not entirely clear what Zaphanath Panea means, but at least one first century Egyptologist believed that it meant, at least roughly, the one to whom mysteries are revealed or at least the one who reveals mysteries. But later, as church father Jerome was translating the Bible into Latin, uh, writing the Vulgate, he rendered Zophanath panea in the text as the Egyptian term for the savior of the world. Jerome was likely seeing the strong typology between Joseph and Jesus, and he probably kind of connected the dots Uh, in the Egyptian name that Pharaoh gave as Joseph saved the known world from hunger and as Jesus would save the world from the punishment of their sins. Uh, And and more recently, there's a third view here. Um, In the last 20 years, a German Egyptologist has suggested that Joseph's Egyptian name means God speaks and he lives. In addition to giving Joseph an Egyptian name, Pharaoh also gave Joseph an Egyptian wife, and not just any Egyptian wife. Asenath was the daughter of Potipharah, who was the priest of On. By the way, just try to research a place in Egypt that existed 4,000 years ago whose name is also an English preposition. Now the Greek name for On, thankfully, was Heliopolis, or Sun City. It was the place where the Egyptian sun god Ra was worshipped, and Ra was one of the two most prominent gods in Egyptian culture. And Potipharah, who was a different person than Potiphar, by the way, uh, Potipharah was the high priest to that god, making him very influential and in political. So, Potiphar's daughter is given in marriage to Joseph, and Joseph immediately becomes a bigwig. Another thing to note here, after Joseph, as a teenager, had been stripped of his multicolored robe that was a gift from his father, meant to signify the leadership of the family, as we heard weeks ago, He then went off to Potiphar's house and as he was fleeing Potiphar's wife who was grabbing after him, he left his cloak behind. He's now left two cloaks behind because of the sin of other people. But now his clothing, his cloak, is restored to him in the form of fine Egyptian linen. The final point in your outline is good things come to those who wait. Or rather, God's perfect plan to incubate a nation. Read with me verses 46 through 57. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh the king. And Joseph went out from the, uh, went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he was gathered up, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around that city, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came... Two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Joseph proposed a plan of action. It was approved and he was in charge of its administration. So right away he begins to travel throughout the kingdom and put the food from the harvests in the storehouses of the cities nearby those local farms. This decentralization of the food made it more convenient and less labor intensive to distribute the food in the coming years of famine. It would cut down the Egyptian citizens' traffic to the capital where Pharaoh resided, making room for foreigners to come to the capital to buy food from Joseph. This is a brilliant implementation of a disaster preparedness plan And shows great leadership on Joseph's part. God surely gifted Joseph with wisdom to implement his plan to save the known world after putting the right man in the right place at the right time. Joseph has two sons to whom he gives Hebrew, not Egyptian names, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh was given his name because Joseph had forgotten the suffering through which God had him walk to fulfill his purpose in saving Egypt and the known world. Because of God's faithfulness, Joseph had forgotten how his brothers had sold him to slavery. He'd forgotten the accusation of Potiphar's wife. He'd forgotten the total loss of any future plans he had made for himself. And he'd forgotten how good he he had his relationship with his dad. he had forgotten everything. Because what he had now was... Sweeter. And Joseph named his other son Ephraim, which means, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God had taken all the suffering Joseph had endured and turned it into blessing. In the very land where he was enslaved and imprisoned, he was made prime minister. Joseph names his sons out of remembrance of what God has done in his life without concern for his Egyptian job, his Egyptian wife his Egyptian culture, or his Egyptian colleagues. Now, as I've mentioned a few times, your outline is arranged in such a strange way because our human impulse when we suffer or encounter a trial is to ask, why are these things happening to me? We try to diagnose our situation. We try to find fault. We try to point blame and we try to fix the problem. This is the same problem that, in my opinion, afflicts our American culture today. Anytime you wanna do anything that might remotely endanger your life, even driving a car, you have to sign a legal waiver. I'm serious, in these new cars you get in and if it's got a navigation or something, or a backup camera, you have to click, okay, I agree, I'm not relying on the backup camera. Don't get me wrong, legal waivers and insurance are the reasons that we can enjoy zip lining and roller coasters and whitewater rafting and paragliding and heliskiing, and they're a wonderful framework for our society, but it used to be that it was already understood who was at fault. <laughs> we now have a feeling that we're entitled to a life without suffering, without injuries, and with no adverse diagnoses, no ill fate we enter life feeling like the first thing that goes wrong to us has to be explained to us. It has to be justified. But to see things from God's perspective, you have to flip your viewpoint to God's perspective because God actually knows what's going on. And he can control the events that take place in your life. Our impulse to explainify our lives in order to prevent future suffering and hold to account those responsible for it. But that's just simply not for us to do as individuals. Now, in conclusion, remember those laws of power I mentioned earlier? Never outshine the master. Never say what's more than necessary, and let others do the work while you take all the credit. Joseph utterly failed all of these. He outshined the master when he explained the dream to Pharaoh, doing something that Pharaoh couldn't do. He outshined the master when he did that and put his courtiers to shame. He said way more than what was necessary when he not only interpreted the dreams, But then he offered a solution. He didn't take the credit when God did the work of revealing the interpretations of the dreams. He continued to give credit to God. See, Joseph didn't set out from Canaan to acquire power. He was sold into slavery by his brothers and then sold to Potiphar. But he did such a good job. The truth is, he did such a good job serving Potiphar that he made him head over everything in his household. And after Joseph was betrayed by Potiphar's wife and he was imprisoned, he was made to be the supervisor of the other prisoners in the house of the captain of the guard, as we read from the account that the cupbearer gives. He had a heart and a mind of service. When he was summoned to Pharaoh's presence, he didn't start out with, okay, okay, I can interpret your dream, but before I interpret your dream... Let's see what you can do for me. He didn't try to organize or ensure his future based on what he was about to do. He was obedient, he was service-minded, and he kept in mind God's plan for his life. In the midst of injustice, Joseph served his God and his master's. In the midst of betrayal, he served his God and his master's. In the midst of being used, he served his God and his masters, having faith that God would know what he was doing. By way of application this morning, God doesn't help those who help themselves. We see the human way to accomplish this goal or achieve this status, but one of God's favorite things to do is to append that process, to achieve to, to achieve his own goal through his means, often frustrating our own plans and defying our expectations and especially our entitlements. Now sometimes God's plan looks like becoming successful, wealthy and powerful overnight. Sometimes that looks like getting cancer, enduring divorce, losing a job. God is seeking after his own glory. He wants people to know who he is. And he will use our lives to direct the attention of us and others toward himself using means we least expect. Not only is God not bound to the laws of nature and the laws of power, but he created them. He can use these laws for his own purposes. When Jesus would use the laws of nature to his advantage, even bending or breaking them sometimes, because he could do that, it was called a miracle. And that's what happened with Joseph here. Joseph, a young Hebrew, fell accidentally into the presence of Pharaoh, and he has the audacity to violate the very first law of power by outshining the master. Then he refused to take credit for interpreting the dream, He told him the whole meaning of the dream, violating number 17, keep others in suspended terror, cultivate an air of unpredictability. (laughs) He told the unvarnished truth about the bad news of the drought, violating law number 32, play to people's fantasies. And then he named his son's Hebrew names, violating rule number 38, think as you like, but behave like others. After two whole years, you know, the end of this story, at least the end of this chapter, is a very happy one. We see a very happy ending in the book of Job also. Most of the time, though, suffering in our lives doesn't result in our overnight appointment to a position in the president's cabinet or waking up to be a 100 times richer than you've ever been. Most of the time we experience the two whole years of suffering and waiting in prison and stuff that makes our lives seem like a purposeless existence spent in pain and obscurity, but we don't get the rest of the reward part. How long have your two whole years been? Have you had a hard week? Enduring scorn, maybe, from your kids or co-workers? How about the last month? Goodness sakes, how about the last seven months? Has it been longer? Ten years? Christian, however long your suffering lasts, know two things. Know that your suffering has a purpose in revealing God's glory to, to you or to others through your life. And know that your meteoric rise to glory and blessing is coming. When Jesus fully consummates his kingdom, we are promised to share in his glory and blessing in a way that we cannot picture or fathom. Back in August, we got a glimpse of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians of of how our existence in eternity might look. And brothers and sisters, this is going to be glorious. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you're enduring suffering in this life, you won't Find meaning in your suffering outside the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're looking for meaning in human suffering, know that its meaning is to point us to the sufferings of Jesus and to point us to God. Jesus suffered when he left heaven to be born a human baby. He suffered when he worked as a carpenter in obscurity while he waited for his earthly ministry to begin. He suffered when his followers didn't believe him after receiving serial proofs. He suffered when he was betrayed by a close confidant Judas Iscariot. And he obviously suffered as he was tortured and killed by Roman soldiers at the hands of the Jewish leaders on the cross. Jesus knows your suffering. And there is meaning and purpose in your life and in your suffering when you surrender your life to Jesus and claim his covering sacrifice for yourself. Just as Pharaoh told people from all around the world and within Egypt, go to Joseph to buy bread. Jesus tells us to come to him. Those within the nation of Israel and those from around the world. The bread of life is free to you and will give you eternal life. If you want to know more about this, come talk to me after the service or any of the elders. We'd love to discuss these extremely important matters with you. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the life of Joseph. We thank you for the example that he was as he endured suffering and wrongdoing and the evil of others. He continued to serve you and serve his masters and be diligent. You did reward him in this life and we know that you will reward us after this life. But Lord, we we can do something that sounds perverse to human ears. We can thank you for suffering. Lord, we thank you for the life of Joseph, your word, your spirit, and what you have done for us this morning. In your son's name we pray, amen.